I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello and welcome to a controversy-filled Irish Times second captain podcast. Owen Murphy and Ken all here. Hi, Hello guys. there, Owen. How are you? We're like a cross between TMZ and Pop Bitch today, lads. It's all scandal. All the way. Some of it kind of hilarious, like the latest twist in the Tom Brady <laughs> deflated football story. Some of it a lot more important, in particular the potential retirement of one of Australia's uh, top sportsmen because of racial abuse that he's been suffering. We're going to throw a little bit of Hulk Hogan in there, the Camogie coin toss madness, and maybe a little bit of doping in golf just to really make you feel bad about sport. Sorry, what was that last one? Go- golfing, uh, golfing and dope? Do- golfing. <laughs> doping in golf. Wow, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Do you want me to start with that one? Because well, I'm not we're using up our entire year's worth of scandal here. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you what's intended is, but I'll give you the golf straight away, seeing as you okay. seem so interested in it. It's not something we're going to dwell on anyway. But uh, Johnny Waterson, the Irish Times, writes, Golf has emerged in the most recent World Anti-Doping Agency figures as having a significantly higher percentage of adverse findings than athletics, cycling, rugby or soccer. 2015 figures, which collate a lot of samples, etc., etc., shows that golf scored a 1.6% rate of positive tests compared to 1% for athletics and 1% for cycling. More embarrassing for the sport is that it came in third overall. So the only two sports ahead of it, Ken, I'll give you a guess. Uh, rugby. No, no, I just mentioned rugby was below it. Murph, do you want to guess? Uh, weightlifting. Well, correct, weightlifting. Soaring high there as always. And, this. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. Equestrianism. Equestrianism is correct. You're joking. Yeah. Did, I, I got the correct. Feeling. Yeah, I was about to give you a clue there, but you're there. Yeah, so golf is only a third. So what are only these two sports. Unbelievable. What, what kind of adverse findings are we actually talking about? We, here they don't give detail. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, they're broad figures. Uh, that's yeah. all that's released. So we don't know the levels of these golfers and, and all the rest of that, but uh, it's pretty worrying and embarrassing as I think that's the word that Johnny uses there, uh, particularly given that golf is going to the Olympic Games now and is going to be looked at by a new audience. Why, yeah, yeah. It's literally the only reason why they have a drug policy anyway is because right. they're... Uh, They've decided to get into the Olympics. Well, listen, the golf is out of the way, but uh, Tom Brady's the flight of footballs, Ken. You've heard about the latest in this? Is, yeah. So, to, uh, quick backstory, the deflated footballs from last year, Tom Brady was banned for four games 
which seems quite astronomical compared to some of the other bans uh, of less games for such issues as domestic abuse and others. But anyway, uh, the f- footballs have been found to be deflated in their big championship game last year, NFC Championship game. Uh, and it was he was found to have had some role. He was never fully proven to have actually stood over there and got those footballs just to his liking. But essentially, he was uh, there was enough circumstantial evidence they felt to give him a four-game ban. He has appealed that. That appeal has been heard. In the course of that appeal, the NFL have said, well, listen, I mean, you've given us this new information, which is that you destroyed your phone during the investigation. We wanted to meet up with you. You knew we wanted all this information. And either on the day or around the day that you met with our investigator, you not only destroyed your phone, had your assistant uh, destroy your phone and all the information on it. And therefore, that looks pretty bad for you, Tom. Four game ban stays. Well, I mean, how did he destroy the phone? Did he drop it into the toilet or did he, you know, he, he smashed the piece with a hammer and microwave the SIM card? Well, apparently he instructed his assistant to do the dirty work, so I don't know. Right. I don't know the exact mechan- mechanism for the Put it beyond the phone. use. Put it permanently beyond use, I think is the... Well, wasn't that the, a cease, uh, the kind of ceasefire type language yeah. that we're using here? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was decommissioned. Um, sound like the act of a guilty man? Wouldn't like to speculate, Owen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we all we all we can all see um, the possible significance of that move by Tom Brady. Um, how how often are you uh, changing your phones? Not that often. Yeah. I mean, whenever I get an upgrade, every two years. Yeah. I, I had to change my phone this week myself, actually. Did you? I uh, I I went camping uh, last weekend, right? Yeah. To Inishbofin. Very nice. Beautiful. Really, really nice. Okay. Uh, bought myself a new tent. Pop-up job. So you just throw it up in the air, actually pops. Amazing. What? Uh, it's a pop-up tent. So you... you, you yeah, I don't agree with that. It defeats the spirit of camping. You, you what? You, what? You throw you, the tent? You basically, in. just... It, it comes... It's in a, in a circle. Right. And you just basically throw it up in the air. Right. And it just pops out. It's oh. it's actually... It, then you, tie, you have to tie it down yourself. You get the pegs out, you tie it down. But oh, I mean, you have to... Well, well just peg it. Pegs. That's all. That's yeah. all. You well, don't I mean, that's to... the difficult part. No, it's not. It is. The difficult part is the is the is trying to erect the tent. Right. Erecting the tent is the problem. Okay. Tying it down, that's not a problem. Okay, this is just one of those modern tents. Yeah. I well, mean, you're just like those tents have been around for years. I mean, are, are, can you still get the old kind of tent? <laughs> well, of course can you can. Can you still even get those tents that you're talking about? Yeah, obviously. They, okay, well, anyway. They take up 95% yeah, of listen, the... Listen, Tom Brady did, did not destroy a tent. He destroyed a phone, so yeah. let's get back to it. So you got the... You, you I got, had the pop-up tent. I thought it was the great lad. Yeah. Everyone struggling might and may to put up their tent. Me just, you know, let's get to it here, people. I mean, yeah. I can't see what the delay is. Yeah, yeah. Um, cut to about 12 hours later. Um, I've retired for the evening. And there's a little pouch just right on the side of the tent. I'm like, this tent... Oh good, this tent is amazing. This little pouch here, off the ground is also, you know, not gonna get wet. Pop my phone in there. There was one leak in the entire tent, and that was right along the seam of that particular pouch. So I put my hand in to see what time it was at like five AM and it was like a full pool of water. <laughs> oh no. Like a little glass of water that you put your phone in to store it. Yeah, that's basically it. I put my Brilliant. yeah, like there were a set of false <laughs> like there were a set of false teeth, effectively. <laughs> Just put it in the disinfected there, that's that. Yeah. So um, you feel Tom Brady, but I mean, I still, fe- I still feel I was still able to get all of the information from my phone. So I mean, it's not actually as easy as all that to just destroy your phone. Well, Brady does claim that he subsequently did provide them with information, even though he said that 
he was never informed that there was going to be any issue with destroying the phone. I would have thought there's an implied issue when you know they're looking for your electronic information. But after that, he said, well, we went out and we got some of those old phone records and we gave the investigator the answers he wanted. Again, the NFL, every single point on this is disputed by both parties. But this would be Brady's point that I, I didn't realise. I, In fact, we had informed the investigator that we were going to get rid of the phone. And we, uh, he, he says, look, my rights as a private citizen should mean that they don't get my phone anyway. So in, on the one hand, he's making an ethical stand on this. Mm. And on the other, he's saying, well, even despite that ethical stand, I still went and furnished them with loads of electronic information. And yet they're... Yeah. For four games regardless. I just I just don't know if I can really trust Tom Brady. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could trust him, I suppose, to deliver a defense-splitting pass, sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure uh, if I can really trust him in necessarily in other, in other uh, spheres of life. I think it's just as well that he's an American football player, you know, and not... Um, you know, not the president of the United States or something like that. <laughs> the Australian story I mentioned concerns the Aussie rules footballer Adam Goods, the Sydney Swans player who's twice won the Brownlow Medal, which is the that sports version of Player of the Year. You might remember we interviewed Goods on this podcast a couple of years back when he was part of an all-Indigenous international rules team that travelled over. He spoke brilliantly that day about his Aboriginal background and culture. I've just been listening back to it today. We'll play a, a bit of a clip later on from it. He's made a point of being outspoken on these issues in general. Unfortunately, things have turned fairly ugly for Goods in the time since then. He's been booed relentlessly by opposing fans around the country. He's been affected to the point that he's now apparently considering retiring from the game. If you just imagine that, and it's the, we were always trying to look for equivalents in our own sport, but it's the equivalent of top top black soccer player in England, for example, retiring in 2015, considering retiring based on being racially abused. That's the closest equivalent. It's, there's certain issues around uh, in the indigenous culture in Australia that, that are unique to that. But as a general point, this is the kind of thing that we're talking about here. Now, this has brought to the surface a lot of unresolved issues about how Aboriginal people are viewed in Australia. We'll get into all of that right after we have a look at the big weekend in the football championship. We've got two qualifiers, Sligo Tyrone and Galway Donegal on Saturday and on Sunday it's the quarterfinals, Kerry Kildare and Dublin Fermanagh. Ushie McConville is in studio. Ushie, how are you? All has fallen. That's good, it's good. Uh, Kieran decided that today, rather than focusing too much, he thinks that we're focusing too much on the big three, the big four, whatever the big amount of teams it's are It's entirely now. coincidental, by the way, <laughs> to, to goal of playing this. But anyway, go on. Certainly, on. we should talk more about the underdogs, the teams we don't talk about, the Fermanas, the Kildares, the Galways. The Dunny Galls. Before, before they all get beaten. This yeah, exactly. yeah. uh, where do you want to start, Murph? Fermanagh? Uh, well, yeah, why not Fermanagh, actually? Because... Um, you know, this is the kind of story that the qualifiers was kind of made for. The, this idea that um, teams like Fermanagh can actually get something really get really get something out of a, out of a summer, and what they've done since beating Fermanagh or since beating uh, Antrim in the in the quarterfinal, kept pace with Monaghan for fifty five or sixty minutes of an Ulster semi final, um, then beat Antrim again, then Roscommon, then Westmead. What does this mean to Fermanagh? Does this signal something that Fermanagh can build on for next year? Uh, or is it, is it something just in and of itself? Or is it something that, right, well, maybe next year we can challenge for an Ulster title, if you know the question I'm asking. Yeah, I think the major difference with teams having a run like that, especially like a Fermanagh, is that next year it's not a harder sell for Pete McGrath to come and play with Fermanagh, if, you know, if, that, yeah. if that makes any sense to you. And I think that's a, that, that can't be understated or underestimated, the effect that that's going to have. Uh, the other thing is, you know, just a word of caution is that for all of the enthusiasm that there has been this week, 
It changes completely. It does die no matter what. Really, it changes it's hard next. To remain, it changes yeah. next week, especially if you get a, a bit of a pace. But you got to put it in context. And uh, one thing I have to say about Pete McGrath is, and he went in there sort of under a cloud. Some people in Fermanagh didn't want him. Um, you know, supporters weren't that. They wanted a big, a bigger name. Mm. Believe it or not, uh, you know. But Pete McGrath's trade tested. Took him a little bit. Of, it took him a while to get players rolling in behind him. Uh, he's got a good backroom team there. Um, Remy Johnson is somebody who's been involved in Fermanagh football in every way, shape, and form for the last twenty odd years. Played against him. Good, solid lad. Good, solid footballer. Um, and he seems to be, you know, behind McGrath big time. And between them, they have created something. And the one thing I like about them, and I always speak about this, is let's say Westmead against Meath, okay? So the way they go out and they're gung-ho when they play. And then all of a sudden they play differently, completely against uh, Dublin and all that they keep down the score or whatever. One thing with Fermanagh, they have played the exact same way now under Pete McGrath for 12 months. And it took them a while to get, you know, that I don't think it's perfect and I don't think, you know, they have the personnel up front that's going to cause Dublin any problems or anything like that. But they've made huge progress on the McGrath. How I is mean, it? How, how do they play under him? Well, they get they do get a lot of players back, but they have well, the big thing they have is three big men in the middle of the field. O'Callaghan, they play Jones at centre half forward who comes out and gets kickouts as well, and Owen Donnelly who's very important to them. And realistically, if he's not playing at the weekend, you know, that's as big a blow as it, as there could be for Fermanagh football. They let the ball in the Quigley a lot, uh, a lot early. If that doesn't work, they change it, and they change it against Westmead to perfection. Uh, the funny thing is that. Anytime I've seen Quigley, they haven't bombed the ball into him like they did against Westmead. They've passed it into him, and he's able to get out in front for somebody who doesn't look like he's the most athletic, but he does get out in front, he does win ball. Uh, they get their two wing-half wing half forwards back, and, and they do spend a lot of time defensively. But one thing they do is they get forward with, you know, with a decent bit of pace. I know they've been playing in probably smaller pitches up to now, and it's probably harder to do that. And you suddenly get the 15 minutes in Crow Park and you realise, Jesus, still another 20 minutes to go and I've knocked me pan out for 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. like, and I don't really have that much left. And the bench wouldn't be brilliant. But even losing McCluskey at the weekend, uh, losing Donnelly at the weekend, and they just get on with it and they, and, they, and they get over the lane. And in fairness, you know, they seem to be the team that was finding their feet towards the end of the game. That would give them huge confidence. They're in a, really are in a no-win no lose situation at the weekend. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I suppose what they're nearly giving their fans, what they've given their fans is two yeah. unbelievable days. The Roscommon win, in particular, I was reading Deccan Bogue, uh, from Anna Ryder, that we'll remember as the author of the book that got yeah. Kevin Cassidy into all that trouble. Um, uh, a brilliant book. And he wrote a piece um, that week talking about this was just about how extraordinary a day it was to beat a Division One team in Brewster Park in front of a home crowd. They did, did the same thing in Cavan against Westmead the last time out, and basically this weekend is very much you get the chance to come to Pro Park and say, right, thanks for the memories, guys. Effectively, <laughs> and uh, like that's that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. I mean, Kildare have. Uh, you know, Kildare will probably are in a much better position to have a cut off Kerry than Fermanagh to have a cut off Dublin, um, and I think a lot of the, the quite a few Kildare people were had their noses out of joint that in the reaction to that game it was nearly all about Cork and about how spineless and how yeah. terrible Cork had been and all the rest. And Cuthbert has since lost his job, but 
like Kildare have done something similar as well. Like they've they've actually they have they've had a season as a result of the qualifiers that they can actually build on for next year. And they're a team that right, they're in Division Three now. You would have to think they can get their act together to win Division Three next year and get back to Division Two and then get back to 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 actual to playing to playing football at the at the level that they think they should be playing at. Yeah, and to be honest, it was a perfect game for Kildare mm. because one thing about Cork was Cork was always going to let them play football. You know, I mean, Kildare coming up against a team that stifles them, or a Dublin who's going to just run through straight over the top of you because they're so f- physically powerful. It was a perfect game for them. Uh, I didn't say it before the game, but I thought getting into the game it was a game. It was a game that suited both teams because I thought, well, Cork, you know, aren't going to be aggressive. You know, they're not going to be probably that direct, but they will probably win the game because they're slightly better players than Kildare. But they didn't turn up, and when Cork don't turn up, Jesus, it's a you know it's it doesn't it doesn't bear thinking about. Yeah, it's it was very very it was, difficult to it, look at. It is it is difficult to look at in a lot of ways. Albeit, I was impressed with Kildare. There was a, a stat that popped up at one <coughs> stage in the first half. It's only about twenty five minutes, twenty seven minutes gone, uh, and the hand passes were something like say twenty two for Cork and eighty four for yeah. Kildare. So this, which indicated the possession Kildare had, and also how they loved that hand pass. But I thought they were using it intelligently, and it mightn't. Some people think nearly that, that that part of the game should be outlawed, but uh, they were hand passing across the field where necessary. Yeah. But in fairness, their forwards kept making the runs, and by the time they yeah. stuck it into full forward line, the court defenders were nowhere to be seen. Yeah, and that's the thing, they were patient, you know, and, and they only had to be patient for so long because, <clears throat> because Cork, you know, who played that sort of defensive system for the first 20 minutes, I think the stat after 25 minutes was 64% possession for Kildare. And Cork just couldn't get a hand on them at times, but uh, it's so it is so hard, hard to, to look. Judge at, oh, hard to it's look so at hard. Too, to, yeah. It's so hard to look at Cork because they have so much more to offer. I think, and Brian Cupbrook going is is an opportunity for them, really and truly. And I know Brian Cupbrook seems like a really good lad and all that there, but this is an opportunity for them now to make to to draw a lane in the sand and what's gone on before. I mean, what they did under Conor Coonan wasn't good enough. I mean, they won not Ireland, but they should have kicked on and won a couple more because they had the players. Uh, and then they bring somebody in from his backroom team, you know, to, to try and, you know, to try and change things up, which I thought was madness. Uh, it's sacrilege to say it because people in Cork won't accept it, but they need somebody from from outside not just somebody from outside but somebody from outside who is in the mould of a James Horn or a McGuinness or somebody who's because I, I think that if you took a couple of Cork players out of their system and put them into like a Donegal or a Monaghan or a Dublin or a whatever and showed them what is actually happening at inter-county level to become the top teams I'd say they'd be shocked really? yeah so uh, Billy Morgan, keep your phone on. Is basically what we're saying here, because uh, that's usually what Cork do. Yes, and that, and that's that's maybe what the that's maybe what they'll do again, or they'll maybe get an ex player from within the county because they don't see as if why should we go outside the county, even if there is I don't know in depthly about the coaching system in Cork, but if there is somebody there who is you know willing to bring it on to the next level to change things up. And to put in that professional ethos that seems to be uh, in the top six or seven teams in the country, um, if they do that, I've no, absolutely no doubt on. Uh, and if they can get the aggression and the directness up, then absolutely no doubt. 
All right. they still have the players. Well, there's no doubt who the underdogs are in the Sligo Tyrone game. Or if the Sligo people even want us to talk about Sligo, uh, 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 they recovered. Well, Sligo unfortunately have this habit of of playing one really good championship game every year, and they went and did that against Roscommon and played you know really really well. I think everyone was watching that in Sky or whatever would have been very impressed by them, but. That's kind of been their limit over the last number of years. That they're capable of one good, one big, big win, and take it from there. Like I, Tyrone are just too experienced. I think they would, it's not even, not actually even so much experience. They just have better players, to be honest. And that's just it, really, isn't it? It's it's it's, it's simple. It sounds pretty simple, but you think that Tyrone will eventually see them off a bit, like the scene off Tipperary. But I give Sligo chances again. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I think all this business about it being impossible to recover from, well, maybe there's a longer turnaround for this one, impossible to recover from these uh, yeah, 26 points, wasn't it? Yeah. So does, a, does that outweigh the fact that they've got an extra week from what Cork had? Probably does. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a time limit for every point that you've been <laughs> yeah, beaten. You <laughs> yeah. beaten well, I actually give Sligo a chance this weekend. I do. I think there'll be a reaction, but I also think that uh, Tyrone haven't become a brilliant team overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they still have their deficiencies. Uh, I think defensively they'll struggle against that forward line. Um, I just think their own defense is probably more poor than than Thrones is, and that's why Thrones will probably eke out some sort of result against yeah. them. But I give them a chance. You've I don't think it'll be the the pounding that people think it's going to be. All right, you've held fire long enough, Murph. Mm. Go with oh, me. Go. Here we go. Well, I've ran. <sighs> I've rang everyone that I ring every time I have a stupid idea that Galway are going to do really well in the game, right? And usually what happens is I ring them and I say, you know, I think Galway have a big chance this weekend. And they go, oh, would you stop? We're terrible. <laughs> I've done that this week. And every single person that I've talked to has said, yeah, I give us a big chance. <laughs> so I, I really, I don't know. I don't know what else I can do. Um, so all your brothers and your father have yeah, all Yeah, no, there's a few others as well. I, I, the, the, Jim Carney? Yeah. I've, and there's a few others as well. I've I've rang them all, and they've all said, "You know, I really fancy our chance this weekend." <laughs> so I I don't know I don't know what to do. So I mean I'm. Uh, it looks like Donegal are, are vulnerable. The, I, I suppose the the argument that you can make is that Carl Lacey is out. Michael Murphy was played and he looked injured during yeah. the Ulster final. Uh, I saw Tommy Conlon in the Sunday Independent writing that the legs were gone. Donegal's legs were gone. I mean, this is the argument that Gola people are, are are constructing to say that we have a chance to beat probably the best team of the last, well, one of the three best teams of the last four or five years. Uh, are we, have we lost our collective minds? No, I think you definitely have a chance. I think it depends, obviously depends on, oh, that's a sim- simple thing to say, but it obviously depends on Donegal's reaction. But I always go back to uh, the game they played against Leash in, uh, Carrick, and Le- Shannon. in yeah. Carrick and Shannon. And that day they were punch drunk they were out on the feet in every way possible Leash just didn't have a forward uh, they, Donny Kingston played that day and, and, and Ross Munley and Ross Munley was very good that day but he had absolutely no support and Donegal just managed to stumble over the lane in the last 10 minutes by, by uh, again Murphy McFadden kicking a few scores to get them over the lane when you when you think about this game you have to think that Galway have to play really, really well, as well as they played against Derry. Um, they have to be as organised and as patient as they as they have as they have been so far. 
uh, because Donegal will wait you out. And I don't know if if Galway have come up against something like that and still their legs may be gone or whatever, but they still have quality players and quality individuals who will be hurting and smarting from what happened against Monaghan. And remembering, of course, that if Donegal had to win this game, we'd be talking about Donegal in a completely... In a complete, we'd be thinking of Donegal in a completely different frame of mind and really and truly, they should have won that game. Mm. You know, they kicked 16 or 17 wides. They were all over Monaghan for the last 20 minutes and just couldn't get a couple of scores, which they normally do, to be fair to them. Uh, there's something missing with them, all right, but... I don't know. I don't want to burst. I don't want to burst the man's bubble, but uh, <laughs> but I think I think Donegal will have enough somehow. Um, I think Galway will cause them huge problems, and if Galway if Galway start really really well and get and get pick up a bit of a lead against them, Donegal could struggle because they'd be thinking, you know, is this deja vu? Yeah, I mean the the, the most encouraging thing, and in ways maybe the most worrying thing about Galway is that. Uh, if you looked at the Galway team from the outside, you would say, right, the two young midfielders have won two under-21s. They've got all the pedigree in the world at college's level, underage level. They haven't really played, actually. Fintan O'Currin and Tom Flynn haven't really dominated games to the extent that Galway people are hoping that they would. Paul Conroy is Galway's best player, has been Galway's best player for the last five years, isn't actually having it. A yeah. great year. You know, like the first half again in, in, in our, in our ma- couple yeah, of years. Like he hasn't really played... Like we have the All Ireland Club champions, uh, their two best players were Gary Sykes and Michael London, yeah. and they haven't actually really like Sykes was good against Derry, like kicked a freeze and did all right, and he's coming into a bit of a form. But we haven't actually seen a whole lot from Michael Lundy. And if you were watching the club championship in February and March, like remember the game against Vincent's, he was just on a different yeah. planet. He was magnificent, and and in the final against Loch Neal, and you would hope that maybe the vibes of the club final you know he, he sees Crow Park and maybe we might see something from him. he got a great goal last year as well in Croker so that's kind of the the, the, the argument okay was, goal it is yeah. <laughs> the argument that we're kind of making is that right if we if you got three or four yeah. of those five guys really playing to the top of their the, the top that play, uh, level that they can reach suddenly you're looking at a team that's that you know that that could and you haven't you haven't counted in Comer Cummins and Shane Walsh who are going to play Shane Walsh hasn't massive, played at all this uh, year are going to play a massive part in it probably yeah. this weekend that's and I I think that's the that there have been very good wins like the Armagh to beat go up to Armagh and beat them away and then to beat Derry at home in you know a monsoon they're 100% the games the goal have been losing in the qualifiers for the last 10 years yeah so the do you remember the game in 08 when there was a deluge, yes, against uh, Kerry, the, yeah, the, the floods and and I mean that was a game that Galway played as well as they as they possibly could play. If they put in another performance, something similar, that would have played with a little bit of freedom. No, we're talking with completely different players, but <clears throat> I always think of Galway in the same sort of in the same frame of mind in that uh, they are a team who can go out, express themselves, play football. They're playing a little bit differently now, but still. I always I always look at the forward lane. I looked at the forward lane against Derry, and it was a forward lane that can hurt you, mm. and you can hurt you from everywhere. Because uh, one of the problems that the teams who are trying to make that uh, transition to the top teams, one of the problems they have is that they have two, maybe at most three forwards who are really gonna on any given day. Whereas with Galway, you know they can hurt you from everywhere in that in that forward lane. We name we've actually named seven forwards there who are 
top class forwards. If they can get more out of the boys in the middle of the field, it's a pretty solid partnership at the same time. Uh, and then defensively, if they can just be as well organised as they were against Derry so and, we, and as disciplined. Which is the most likely shock then out of the four quarterfinals? Sligo. You think Sligo yeah. are going to turn Tyrone over, have a good chance to turn Tyrone over? Just a last word, Oshina, have been following the controversy in the Camogie Championship, the Dublin and Clare originally asked to toss a coin to decide who gets into the All-Ireland quarterfinals. So they, for people who haven't been following it, these two teams drew, uh, they drew the, their match and the rules stipulated that the any teams that finished level in their group would not, there would be no playoff, there wouldn't be anything about points difference. that they. It was all about results between the two teams and they draw with each other. So therefore there's going to be a coin toss. They refused to do that. And now the Camogie Association has offered them a playoff which they're going to play on Saturday, a couple of days before the quarterfinal. Yeah, I just love to know. I'd love being a fly on the wall at the original meeting where somebody thought that was a good idea. <laughs> well, so that's, the, that's the that's the big question. That like you can say it's an outrage uh, that it's it's a disgrace that teams years could come down to that. But the counties actually nobody really, ca- nobody called them up on it. Nobody called yeah. the association up on it at the time. Yeah. The rules are being made by the sounds of things. Yeah. They might that might be disputed in some. But quarters. imagine imagine being at that meeting. I, I don't know. Imagine being at the meeting and you've any history in playing any sort of game, even if it's tiddlywinks or drafts or whatever, and somebody's saying to you, well, actually, if the two teams finish, let's toss a coin. I'm sure they'll be fine with First that. First resort is to I'm toss sure, a coin. I'm sure they'll be fine with that. Yeah. You know, like, it's it's absolute, it's absolute madness. And you know what? It's still not really sorted in that you have to play Saturday and then you have to expect it to play Monday again. And the GPA are... A body who represent there's a WGPA now who represent the the ladies, but what have they done? They've done nothing for them, really and truly. Because, like, they just there's just to say, well, hold hold on, you can't play two games in forty eight hours. Mm. I mean, I know it's a better uh, solution than tossing the coin, but still not ideal, is it? All right, Oshin, we'll leave it there. Thank Thanks you. Then he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. the humorous competition. I thought that. Important men for my selection. through an entire slot without mentioning Dublin there at least not by name mm. uh, but uh, it's really you know it's it, there's a crisis in Dublin football oh, no, is this another controversy well it is it is I mean Dublin have again been hamstrung by outmoded uh, uh, championship structures They're, they've got yet another game against vastly inferior opposition this week and it's gotten to the stage where people are saying we should really start to feel sorry for Dublin uh, Dublin have this huge problem. Uh, the biggest problem that Dublin have is that they keep winning games by vast margins. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it a couple of places, you know, now it, it looks like it's going to be August before they even have a game. On the other hand, you could say they haven't had to play a game yet and they're playing in August. So congratulations to Dublin. You only have two 
games against Division One opposition to actually win to get to an All to win an All Ireland. It's I, almost the opposite issue to Cork, and, and I don't I don't feel that much sympathy for teams as we discussed on Monday who are beaten a week after they've lost another game. I, I think they should be able to get their heads around that, but it, it, it is true that. Cork uh, were in a slightly different situation there where once they'd lost to Kerry and then they've got another tough game a week later that it, it, it was almost too tough but then again the Ulster teams are the ones who have it toughest for the most part yeah. I don't think there's any perfect solution to any of this you feel very little sympathy you're saying for Dublin marching towards <laughs> how, uh, how could you have any sympathy <laughs> for a really good team that doesn't have to play another really good team until the last four of well it, well, it is true that that does count against them though it definitely does yeah Okay, but uh, as a Dublin supporter, I'd much rather, uh, and you do sound patronising when you talk like this, but I'd much rather a uh, really tough quarterfinal that they have to that actually ask some questions of Dublin mentally so that then they get to the point. I was actually talking to Brian Mullins about this. I was sitting down beside Brian Mullins at the Dublin mm. Westmead game, and he made the point look, it's hard. You know, the intensity was there in the earlier games in Westmead. It looked, it looked like as we were looking out in the field, it had dropped a small bit, even though they'd won by a bit. He said it's hard to turn that on. On the day, it's yeah. it, you can train all you want, you can have all those things, but it's uh, quite you, difficult to actually t- to to you, you can only learn by being in the situation, and they haven't been in the situation since last year. Yeah, well, I mean, you can you can. This is the same argument that goal that the goal of hurling team had. Now we're nearly getting to that stage that you are just parachuted into an Ireland semi final, and you know you're be- you belly ache about being transported about basically being handed an Ireland semi-final slot every single year, no regardless of how well or badly you're doing. Um and then, you know, it's it's good for Goal, it's bad for Goal. At the end of the day, it's ridiculous that a competition can have Donegal playing as many Division One and Division Two teams as they've played already this year, and Dublin still just chugging along, chugging along, playing teams vastly inferior to them. I mean this is this is this is the whole ball game. Oh, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want Dublin to have a barn burner every game in Leinster. You know? yeah, just, just one <laughs> would be nice. <laughs> All right, let's have a closer look at this story around Adam Goods. The, it's a huge issue in Australia at the moment. One of their best sportsmen has been receiving such vitriolic abuse during games that he's apparently considering retiring from the sport. We talked to Adam on the show when he was in Dublin for the International Rules a couple of years ago. He told us all about his background. His mother had been one of the stolen generation of children who were taken from their Aboriginal families in his early years. Because of, because of that, really, because of his mother's background, he didn't really know anything about that part of his identity. But he decided to, when he became more intellectually curious, he started talking to family members, actually studying it in a somewhat academic level and became aware, not just of being part of Aboriginal culture, but also as he found a voice as a top professional athlete, he began to challenge Australian society on attitudes to Indigenous people. I also asked him about a specific example of racial abuse he'd suffered on the field. One incident in particular, it, was, it had happened earlier that year when he'd been playing a game and was abused by a young Collingwood fan. Yeah, look, it was, um, unfortunately, it was Indigenous Round, which is a whole round we have every year to celebrate um, Indigenous culture and the contribution that Aboriginal people have made to our game. And, um, yeah, we were playing against Collingwood at the MCG, and, unfortunately, I heard a racist slur over the boundary line when I was very close to it, and uh, it saddened me to look over that it was a 13-year-old girl. So, Was it quite a shocking thing for you at the time to encounter? Yeah, it was. You know, I was, I was, I was quite upset. Um, I went to the bench and I didn't want to come back out. Um, I went straight to the rooms. Um, it's one of those things that sort of cut me down to my core. Um, and, you know, it, it definitely took a long time to, to get over. And as disappointing as it was, um, you know, talking about it has definitely helped. And not just me, but I think it's helped um, a lot of other people understand how it can be um, 
something so simple like that can really cut the, cut to the core of someone. Um, a lot of positive things have come out of that. You know, a lot of conversations have happened since then, um, not just with me but with other families. Um, got so much support from the community. Um, you know, parents writing in saying how they've had conversations with their young children about name calling and racism and um, the way that I dealt with it. Um, how there was a positive message to come out of it. So. In any situation, there's always a positive to come out, out of it. you just got to really try and focus on it and try and find it. Adam Goods, they're trying to put quite a positive face on that incident from 2013, but things have obviously become a lot worse for him since then. Rowan Connolly of the Melbourne Age was also over with us during that International Rules Series. Rowan, I hope you're keeping well. Can I ask you first of all, what sort of an impact is this story having in Australia? Oh, it's massive. It's, um, I guess, you know, it's the first observation would be it's a story that's really across the borders of um, sport and politics and uh, everyone's sort of jumping in for their uh, their two cents worth and um, it's polarised people like few stories I can remember. So, um, look, it's, it's really... Uh, I think it's brought to the surface a lot of Australia's, uh, dare I say it, ugly underbelly. Um, now, that's a view which a lot of people would object to, but... Um, like I say, I think people have very polar, polarised views on this and um, I'm of the belief that this whole story has sort of tapped into a, an undercurrent of racism that exists in this country that we don't often like to confront and I think um, people really reject it strongly because they're afraid to confront it. Well, why has it uh, bubbled up? Why has this issue bubbled up around the figure of Adam, Go- Adam Goods and also why has it only happened... Uh, quite recently, when this guy's been playing at the top level for so many years? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm afraid the answer is not that simple. Um, there's been, I, I guess, a few events have stacked up. Um, probably there's two pivotal ones. Now, one was a an incident about two years ago during a game where a 13-year-old girl uh, called Goods an ape um, during a game he was playing, and he was very upset by that and brought it to the attention of security people um, and the girl was escorted out of the ground and certainly caused a lot of controversy then but you know it sort of brought those issues to the the surface at the time but um, after some you know initial support for him there seemed to be a real backlash certainly in the media and I, I think the media has played a key role in the story and unfortunately in my view anyway there's quite a a strong core of uh, what I call them hate media that's come to the come to the surface in this country in recent years, and they um, started to demonise Goods for his role in that incident, and the focus became about you know his alleged bullying of a, a young girl who didn't know any better, which I reject completely. Um, but I think that tapped into some latent racist views in this country, and then. Probably uh, a bigger impact was made when he was named Australian of the Year at the beginning of 2014. And um, on Australia Day, uh, January 26, when that award is presented, he made a speech which uh, I just had a look at it before, actually, and I find it you know, remarkably uncontroversial, but some people really took issue with it. He talked a lot in that speech about the uh, disenfranchisement of the Indigenous people in this country and the need for reconciliation. And there's a strong view among Indigenous people that the date of Australia Day is, uh, you know, far from something to be celebrated by them, something 
which causes them great grief because it's the you know it's the beginning of the colonisation of Australia and and the beginning of the the end really for Aboriginal culture. Um, and you know he he did say in the same speech he he for a long time has felt about Australia Day as being Invasion Day, um, but you know he's come to realise that we need to be united, I guess, to come towards a proper reconciliation of Indigenous culture and white Anglo-Saxon culture. Unfortunately, um, you know, this is one of those issues where people will read into words what they want to, and I think that sort of turned a significant amount of opinion against him. And really, he's been started to be jeered in, in games since then, although there's a, you know, a couple of particular games along the way where the ante seems to have been upped. Um, now, there was a game earlier this year during the Indigenous round where he kicked a goal and celebrated with a, an Aboriginal war dance, which a junior team of footballers in this country had, had put together for their games. And that, again, seemed to polarise people. Um, and so there was a bit of a controversy around that. That was probably oh, a couple of months ago now. And then last weekend, uh, his team, Sydney, played West Coast over in Perth and he received louder booing than ever and an Indigenous teammate, Lewis Jetta, was so upset by that that after he kicked the goal, he enacted the same dance and that really seemed to bring it to a head. Um, so again, the media's jumped on board. There's been endless amounts of commentary and opinion and news and really sadly, I think, um, he's been so upset by it this time that he's been given time off and he won't play this weekend and as we speak, there's actually still some doubt about whether he'll play again at all. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the uh, some of the issues surrounding this. You talked about the interview, uh, the I should say, the uh, incident with the 13-year-old girl that match against Collingwood. When we spoke to Adam at uh, that time, around the around the time he was in Dublin for the uh, International Rules Series a couple of years back. He, at that point, actually said that he felt a lot of good things had come out of it. And you've touched on that. He felt that it was, he said that that incident cut him to the core, whereas, whereas, but we played the clip there where he says, look, it's actually opened up a conversation that we need to have. So I've taken the positives out of it. Since then, things have obviously changed. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think the facts have changed. But I think there's a really unhealthy revisionism about the whole thing. Um, and as time's gone on, more and more I'm hearing that thing about, you know, that incident being a, the, the bullying of an unfortunate girl who couldn't defend herself. Now, I, I've gone back over what he said and what happened when that when that occurred. And one of the first things he said was that, you know, I, I plead with everyone not to be too hard on this girl. You know, she needs education and we need to be understanding. And I don't think he could have done anything more to be conciliatory about it, to be perfectly honest, whilst highlighting, um, you know, the need for us to have this discussion. But unfortunately, and this gets back to my initial point, I think there's far too many people in this country who say they want to have the discussion, but then when it actually occurs, they don't want to have the discussion. So particularly in football, and I'm not having a go at the AFL here because I think they've been sincere in their attempts on these things, but we have a lot of symbolic gestures, like we have Indigenous Round and we have, um, you know, welfare programs for young Indigenous players. And on a general level in Australian society, you know, we, we sort of pay whip service to reconciliation. But when Indigenous people dare um, not 
you know, sort of nod politely and say, isn't this great? And actually bring to the table some of the problems and some of the continued discrimination that goes on. Uh, I don't think people like being confronted with that. And this country likes to see itself as being very tolerant and relaxed and easygoing. But um, I have to say, at times like these, I, I don't think that's very true at all. I'm fascinated by the points you make there and by the point you make about the speech he gave when he was named Australian of the Year. I and mean, that's only last year. And presumably he won that accolade based largely on his activism in the in the area of rights for Indigenous people and bigging up uh, his own culture, so he get as well as being a top footballer. So he gets that prestigious award, and then in his speech he makes points that just it's essentially it's as though he got the official seal of approval. But then people feel, well, okay, you've got that, but don't go too far now. Don't go making a point, even though the points he seems to be making during that speech were essentially the same sort of arguments that helped him win that award in the first place. Exactly, and um, look, I, I think again I speak of revisionism, but. You know, it seems as time goes on, people have said, well, he didn't deserve that award, you know, and, and there's sort of this view that it, an award like that shouldn't go to a, a sportsman. It should go to people who work in welfare or or community. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, that that award has gone to other sportsmen. It's gone to people like Mark Taylor and Steve War, our, our cricketers in the past. And I, I don't recall hearing those sort of objections then. And this is one of my one of the things that's made me angry with this story is that sort of um, yeah revisionism of history. Um, and I guess you know look what I haven't commented about. One of the greatest bones of contention with this at the moment is people insisting that he's not being booed on racist grounds. Mm. Now people say he he's being jeered because he stages for free kicks and he snipes. Um, you know he has the occasional cheap shot at other players and that he's very sort of theatrical and dramatic on the ground. And um, I just don't buy that because I think that there's a lot of other players through history and even now who do exactly the same thing and yet they're not the subject of nearly the same amount of derision. And I'd also point out that, you know, those the way he plays football hasn't changed particularly over... 15 or 16 years that he's spent in the AFL and yet the booing is a thing that's really only occurred in the last couple of years. So, you know, I'm not denying that there may be people who don't like him for those reasons and I'm also not saying that everyone who boos him is racist. But I think people, if they're honest with themselves, will examine their reasons for disliking him and, you know, frankly, I, I think the... The, the theme about him being too outspoken um, and not grateful enough for the uh, the largesse we've extended upon him, I, I think we keep coming back to that. Now, whether whether that's the predominant sort of emotion which colours people's feelings towards him or not, I think it's definitely a factor. And I think there's a lot of otherwise decent people who don't like uh, the thought of having to confront that about their own views, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I read uh, Michael O'Loughlin, a former teammate of his, another top player for Sydney, saying for people to say it's not racist, what else can it be? I read about one fan who was evicted after yelling out, get back to the zoo, and that was supposed to be just banter. So that maybe gives a, a level of what we're talking about here. It's I, I literally just Googled this when I... Uh, I was actually... We were alerted to the story by a uh, by 
somebody who tweeted me, I googled it and the first things that pop up are Griff McMaster, or McMaster calls for Adam Goods to be deported. He's a former soccer player. AFL raises mother of girl who called Adam Goods and Ape says he's to blame for booing. I saw something this morning where there's a massive bust up between Dermot Brereton, another top former player, and uh, another contributor to a radio show. It seems like if there's a conversation happening around this, um, some people maybe are leaving their brains at the door during it. Yeah, well, they are. Um, and, you know, one of those comments, uh, look, I work with Dermot Burton, and I, I think Dermot's a, a really reasonable and intelligent person, but I heard that argument he had with the journalist. Uh, it was Rebecca Wilson, a Sydney journalist, and I just don't agree with him. It was like he couldn't see the difference between um, why other players have been booed historically and why he was booed. Uh, he was a you know player who was booed pretty regularly um, and, and why goods is booed. And they're, they're for totally different reasons. Now, one of those other comments you mentioned is the mother of that 13-year-old girl. And I just shook my head when I read that and it just made me think, well, she still doesn't get it. You know, she's after an apology. Now, why on earth is this man who's been subject to racial abuse, why is he required to apologise? And the first comment you read out there was the most staggering of all. The, the bloke who was thrown out last Sunday for, for saying get back to the zoo. Um, when the media caught up with him, his comment was, this is political correctness gone mad. So there you go. There, there's, you know, sort of a, uh, a spread of views, none of which even come close to beginning to understand what this conversation should be about. Can I just ask you lastly, Ron, are you surprised at where people in Australia are with this issue even now. I mean, I was uncomfortable with it when I was there for a year, backpacking a number of years ago. It's really clear the sort of stereotypes of Aboriginal people, the the problems that they encounter on a day-to-day basis. Uh, That was maybe 12, 13 years ago. Now, you'd think things would have moved on, but it doesn't necessarily sound like they have... uh, They they might have moved on in symbolic gestures, as you say, but not necessarily in really how people think. No. And look, I mean, you know... had to climb on my political soapbox, but I, I think Australian society is a dramatically less tolerant society than it was 20 years ago. Um, now, what are the reasons for that? Well, I think there was um, a very divisive politician here called Pauline Hanson who emerged in the mid-90s, who I think sort of gave licence to a lot more um, publicly expressed <clears throat> racism and, and redneck tendencies. I think we had the um, you know the issues here with uh, refugees seeking asylum. That continues to be a very divisive subject, and that has been for probably the last fifteen years now. And I think you know both major political parties uh, are almost as one on this one, much to the disappointment of people in this country who are anywhere left of centre. Um, and you know it, it makes me sad, and I, I think that climate generally. Uh, permeates through all facets of life, be it, you know, politics or culture or or even sports. So I, I really honestly believe that some of the things that we didn't tolerate 20 years ago, we now do. And that's incredibly disappointing when you think that we like to think back to Nicky Winmar, his raising of the jumper back in 1993, and Michael Long on Anzac Day 1995. Now, they're being seen, you know, they have been seen um, historically as, you know, significant landmarks in the advance of um, reconciliation in this country. But when you look at what's happening now, you really have to doubt it. And again, 
you know, I've, I think we've paid a lot of lip service to the concept, but I think in reality, um, I'm not sure we've made any progress at all. And that, that I have to say, I'm, I'm a proud Australian, but, you know, in matters like this and on occasions like this, I'm a lot less proud of my country. OK, well, we really appreciate you for uh, coming on and talking about all that. Listen, Rowan, great stuff. Thanks a million. No, no worries. All right, I'm a, bit, a little bit stunned by that, I have to say. We've spoken to Ron quite a lot over the years, and uh, I think you'd agree, Karen. he's not one given to provocative statements for the sake of it. Nope. He's a very reasoned commentator. So for him to say he thinks that Australia has gone backwards in this over the last 20 years is quite shocking. The Nicky Winmar episode he talks about there, Winmar was a player. This is one of the most iconic images in the history of Australian rules football, of Australian society. He was being taunted by opposition supporters responded by lifting up his shirt and he points to his skin and shouts I'm black and I'm proud to be black and it was seen as this huge moment but that's over 20 years ago now uh, which just makes it I don't know I'm, I'm quite stunned Ken mm. um, yeah I mean it's, it's amazing It's there's a lot of people even like I can see Shane Warren tweeting about this today what was he saying uh, he says it's it's ridiculous um the whole Adam Goods drama is ridiculous. The public can boo or chant whoever's name they want. It's nothing to do with being racist. Um, and he's basically being called an ape and being told to go back to the zoo. I would generally be considered being racist. Yeah. Um, well, he's he's saying that um, uh, it's if the public don't like a sportsman because of the way they play the game, they boo. If they like them, they cheer. Nothing to do with racism. This is what Shane Warren is saying. Now, I mean, it seems that. You know, people who have that opinion are saying what they're are basically they're saying that we aren't racist. We just don't like Adam Goods. Yeah, and uh, don't also don't tar everybody with the same brush of being racist. When yeah, nobody denies that there are a couple of racist idiots. Mm-hmm. But you know how how dare you tar all of our us football decent football folk as racists? Boo, boo, Adam Goods. Um, this this appears to be uh, their contention, and it seems to be kind of a majority view. Actually, um, just looking at the um, uh, poll here, I mean, it's something that Shane Warren actually tweeted. Enough said. Move on. Um, Shane Warren reckons that uh, um, a poll in the Herald Sun showing that 80 percent of people do not believe. The booing of Adam Goods is racially motivated. But that's incredible settles. from Shane Warren. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, the argument. And regardless of even which is about, that's move on. So let's not have the conversation. That's that, that's intolerance laid bare there, that we're not even going to talk. Move clearly, on! Yeah, clearly, Indigenous people feel that uh, they're... That it is the case that it's racist, and as wrong... 80% Connolly, of people say it's not racist, yeah. which means that most white people in Australia don't think this is racist. And everybody else does. <laughs> I'd be really worried if I'm looking at the same poll that you're looking at. And if I was Australian with my eyes open, I would be so worried about that poll. That poll is one of the most depressing things I've seen in a long yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, Ron Connolly sounds very worried about all this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I mean, you know, I've never been to Australia. And so, I, mean, I like, have, Ken. And to be honest, as I said, I, I was so uncomfortable with that aspect of their life of their world view over there. There was an incident uh, in 2004 in Sydney. Uh, I, I was in the city at the time and a young, a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy 
was killed, right? He, the story was, now this is disputed by police, it uh, was disputed by police at the time, certainly, that he was being chased by police despite not doing anything wrong, right? Anyway, he ends up cycling. He has this awful accident where he gets impaled on a fence and is killed. Uh, for about 24 hours, there were, there were these intense riots in and around that area, that suburb of Sydney, and it brought to light all of these things. So I started hearing a lot of these conversations about uh, Aboriginal people and Indigenous people and a lot of the stereotypes that are thrown out Amongst them, I mean, there was all there are all these stereotypes about the, about drinking, about laziness, and this kind of stuff. Then you get a guy like Adam Goods who couldn't be more opposite that stereotype if he tries. Uh, he, he's, you know, he's a top level athlete. He's uh, anything but lazy. He's incredibly articulate. All these things, uh, and then he gets vilified for for being that and for defending um, the rights of his people. Essentially, I, I I'm. I was quite struck by that when I was there. But I would have thought in the 12, 13 years since that things would have moved on. They uh, they certainly don't seem to have. If you want to have a look at, uh, there's a really good article. I tweeted it earlier on by Stan Grant uh, and The Guardian. Um, he's uh, an Indigenous Australian journalist who spoke really well and uh, a, a quite a nuanced article. But I think you'll come away from it with a, a new appreciation of the subject. It's, uh, it's on my Twitter account anyway. But uh, Stan Grant of The Guardian, if you want to have a look at that. Right, Ken, coming up on the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Football podcast, that is. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Uh, we are going to talk a little bit on about the record signing in English football history. That's Angel Di Maria, amazingly. Um, and we're going to talk about what should be happening with him this season. I'm not saying what will happen, what should happen. All right, Tom Brady versus the NFL has become one of the biggest stories in American sport. Let's get into it with U.S. Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. We're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, the big question for you today is how regularly do you destroy your phone and all the information on it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, you know, I'd say about uh, monthly. A guy like me, I send highly sensitive uh, texts and uh, and, uh, I send highly sensitive information, not to mention, guys, intensely personal information that I would never want my enemies (laughs) or really the tabloids to find (laughs) out because I feel like the tabloids are on my tail looking for the... uh, you know what they're looking for, Owen, is the scandal to bring me down. Yeah, all the, so the, the, uh, the bust-ups you have between Murph and Mac. They want to hear about that, and they'll know about that unless you both destroy your phones every week. I, I'm telling you, man. You, there's a re- hey, listen. You guys have been to San Francisco. You've seen the operation. You've seen how we're atop the mountain here. And the way we got there to the mountaintop was by destroying all the evidence along the way. So uh, that's what we do. Uh, no, I think the truthful answer is... I've yet to destroy a phone like the great Tom Brady, who did, who instructed, but not only that, guys, he didn't just destroy his phone, he instructed his assistant to destroy his phone. There's a big difference between Tom Brady doing the dirty work 
and snapping his fingers in his Uggs, drinking his corked bottled water and saying, assistant, destroy my phone, pronto. Uh, it's just incredible. I really, I'm almost wondering if this whole scandal, Deflategate, which as we're talking about now, with this week now, has just ratcheted up to unprecedented heights of absurdity and amazing news quality. I want, I'm really wondering if this is the end of days for America as an empire. It, it's gone, it's gosh darn comical and uh, historically memorably bad theater. But uh, i tell you what, it's riveting. Yeah, it sure is. And Tom Brady's come back at the NFL. He says, well, he says quite a lot of stuff, but with regards to the phone, he says, look, I replaced my broken Samsung phone with a new iPhone 6 after my attorneys made it clear to the NFL that my actual phone device would not be subjected to investigation under any circumstances. As a member of a union, I was under no obligation to set a new president, nor was I made aware at any time during the investigation that failing to subject my cell phone to investigation would result in any discipline. So he says, look, I, I told the investigators I was going to get rid of this phone. That's what I always do. And besides, after, after the event, I also gave them the opportunity to... I said I'd go and try and retrieve some of those messages for them. Are you buying Tom Brady's explanation here? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. It's like there's something about this. It's like there is something about this last salvo from Brady that bizarrely has won me over. And I know we talked about it on our show all morning, and Paulie Mack, who you guys know, thought I was crazy. Everybody thought I was crazy. Most The, the common man's take on this in America is that Tom Brady is as guilty as sin. He is guilty of the biggest cover-up since Monica Lewinsky slash Watergate, and that he's just absolutely dug himself the biggest ditch of all time, a hole he'll never get out of, that his reputation has been sullied forever, and that he's maybe in more denial than O.J. Simpson, uh, basically is, 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 the, is the standard take. But I, there was something. That, so I admit that my what I'm about to say is off the beaten path, and that does not represent the majority of America's thinking. But there was something so primally uh, defiant, something so Mel Gibson Braveheart about about Brady's stance of just I'm still going down, and in fact I'm doubling down, I'm tripling down on my defiance. And what really appealed to me was framing the NFL as this monolithic, oppressive tyrant. This, this, it, he, he was able to frame in this thing where he talked about his rights as a private citizen and as a member of the union who respects his collective bargaining agreement. And for anybody who's ever worked for a tyrannical management figure, and for anybody who's ever been squished at work by some awful corporate drone, there was something about this that appealed to the rebel in me where I was like, you know what, Tom Brady? You go, dude. You know what? You may be guilty, and you may have taken a very bad strategy of denying it when you could have admitted it straight out of the gate, and destroying the phone is highly dubious. But there's something about him still calling out Roger Goodell for shaky investigative work, for punishing him on circumstantial evidence, which I know is evidence, and, and, and generally I support you know, the theory that there was enough circumstantial evidence there. But there's something about him. Still, I, I liken it to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, man, where they're just like, the Bolivian army is descending on them, and they're just alone in their, in their shack, and they're just like, you know what? Let's load up the sandbags, because we're going down as Butch and the Sundance Kid. And it's kind of like Tom Brady. So in just kind of an emotionally primal way, I appreciate what he's doing. But like I said, there is the majority of people think this guy has bungled it. 
He should have admitted it right out of the gate. And as always, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Well, Dan Wetzel, uh, who writes for Yahoo Sports, I don't know if you know him, Brian, but he made he had a fairly stinging uh, article against Brady. And funny, when I tweeted this article, without a huge amount of comment myself, uh, a, lot, a good few people got back to me, and maybe there's a lot of support for Brady here in Ireland. Uh, I suppose we've, we've often talked about the the links to Boston sport, etc. But anyway, Dan Wetzel said this wasn't the court of law. This is something you're you're hitting on here, actually. The, the um, sort of the emotive element of it. He goes, "This wasn't the court of law. Brady knew that. This was hand to hand public relations combat, and Tom Brady showed up for a fist fight and then promptly handed Roger Goodell a howitzer." So he said, "Look." Brady was uh, okay. Maybe Goodell didn't follow all the legal steps that that, and maybe he hasn't proven anything. But in the court of public opinion, Tom Brady destroying his phone uh, nearly the jig is up once that happens. Well, it's a true story. Like and like I said at the outset, I, I acknowledge, I do acknowledge. While I defend Brady today, I do acknowledge the mountain of bad evidence against him. And destroying the phone is unbelievable. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I really hesitant to make this analogy, but only because we're just doing you know, a podcast and we're just kind of joshing around. So please don't hold me to this in a court of law. But it's sort of like how O.J. Simpson was driving to Mexico, and he just happened to have a disguise and $10,000 in cash. And it's like, okay, not a good look when you're accused of murder and you're on the run with a disguise and $10,000 cash. So it's, and, and again, not apples to apples, but it's not a good look that when you're under investigation for your communications with an equipment manager that you use the device that you uh, communicated with the guy and you destroy it. That is an incredibly bad look. But there has to be something said for his rights as a private citizen. There has to be something said for respecting the collective bargaining agreement. And there also has to be something said for the precedent that Goodell is sort of smashing here in almost every case, including the horrific case of Ray Rice mm. cold-cocking his fiance in the elevator, suspensions upon appeal get reduced. It's just how it works in the NFL. So from the get-go, most people thought that the penalty would be a game, right? I think the most people are saying a game maximum, like draconian penalty, would be two games. Because ultimately what we were talking about was the inflated you know, inflated footballs. We weren't talking about, you know, stealing somebody else's playbook. We weren't talking about, which, by the way, Belichick has done before by filming other people's practices, which plays into all this, by the way. Spygate plays into how people perceive the Patriots and Brady in this. In fact, a lot of the anti-Brady sentiment comes from the fact that they are perceived to have been cheaters all along. Not to mention Oakland Raiders fans and many Patriot haters still say the only reason their dynasty was launched was because of a very sketchy ruling by a ref when the Raiders had had them beaten in a playoff game in New England, but the famous tuck rule for all you fans out there, when Tom Brady fumbled the ball but was ruled to have not fumbled the ball on a very obscure rule called the tuck rule. And a lot of people feel like they've resented the Patriots and Brady ever since then because they feel like they their dynasty was launched on uh, false premises and then Spygate doubled it, and then you get to, of course, Deflategate. So the precedent setting of Ray Rice's uh, uh, suspension being reduced and other horrific crimes, the bad look for Roger Goodell to take something as, as really ultimately trivial as inflated football, something that I think in the rule books was supposed to be dealt with a $25,000 fine and to give him a four-game suspension and then to demand that he turn over all his private communications 
there is a little bit of a line crossing here by Goodell, and there is a little bit of the man and management messing with uh, the laborer. So that's the part of me that sympathizes with Brady in this case. One part of it that I, uh, I can't quite work out is how the Brady, his representatives, the, the franchise itself, Robert Kraft, the owner, all these smart guys walked straight into this. Robert Kraft said yesterday that he, what he thought was, okay, they've punished me, they've punished the, the team, they've punished the franchise, we've lost a couple of draft picks, we're paying a million dollar fine, I'll accept that, I won't appeal that, and that means that because I've made that gesture, uh, we're, we're essentially taking, we're putting the gloves back on here, you know, we're not going to go to war, so therefore they'll at least reduce Brady and they'll hopefully exonerate him. He says today, I was wrong to put my faith in the league. I mean, where... Has he been working with his eyes closed the last 20 years? Well, I mean, there's a little bit of that. I mean, obviously the Patriots haven't handled this thing smoothly, but I think he thought, and, and, and maybe more stuff will come out between the time we broadcast this podcast and next week's show. I mean, we may learn more stuff as to really what Goodell really meant or what Kraft really meant. But I do at face value by Kraft's argument that he was making a bit of a negotiating gesture. Okay, oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I, I buy it as well. I don't think he's, at this stage, I don't think he's uh, trying to be deceitful or anything like that. I'm just, uh, I don't know, they seem to misjudge the mood somewhat of Roger Goodell, who maybe is trying to make up for past mistakes by hammering Brady. Uh, uh, Goodell and Kraft have had a spectacular relationship yeah. through the years. I mean, and now again, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors and, and if, if there was a break. Or of Goodell, you know, there's this whole other aspect of this is that Roger Goodell, because we spent a lot of time last year talking about Roger Goodell's hold on the NFL and how tenuous it was. In fact, as I recall, we talked about calling for him to step down. <laughs> he was doing such a bad job with the Ray Rice incident. So you could make an argument that Goodell right now is trying to show Bob Kraft and Tom Brady that he really is back in control and that he's trying to regain the control that he lost in the Ray Rice incident and all the credibility that he lost in the Ray Rice incident and others with the concussions, all that stuff with the brain trauma and all where they've looked bad. The league has looked bad with head trauma and all that stuff going on where, where the, you know, people said this guy, what's a, what's going on with the NFL B will it even be a viable sport in 30 years and C how can Roger Goodell still have his job? So, Maybe Kraft and Brady are, are feeling like they're being made to be the example, the guinea pig for Goodell's new sheriff in town mantra here. And so that's why they're fighting back, saying, wait a minute, what? This isn't consistent with all this other stuff that's gone on. And how are you changing your behavior now? So, like I said, I almost feel like this is kind of a fluid situation. You know, Tom said in that statement, I refuse to, to let this happen to other NFL players without a fight. And I wonder what that means without a fight. Does that mean he wants to go to a court of law and take an oath? Does that mean he wants to sue? I mean, there's all, there's all this talk about suing somebody sounds fun until you have to do it. Oh, do it, know? Tom. This is, that would be the greatest story <laughs> ever in America's court. Brian, last very quick word, because I know you've got some more work to do there. A quick word on another huge figure in American sport. It's all scandal this week in American sport. Hulk Hogan erased from WWE history because of his racist rant. Are you one of the many Hulkamaniacs pepped up on uh, Hulk of Vitamins expressing support for the Hulkster at this time? That's inc- by the way, that's just incredible. What you just said to me right there just made my day. Uh, what was that again? Hulk of Vitamins? Oh, yeah. He used, to, he used to always encourage all his little Hulkamaniacs to take their Hulk of Vitamins. Personally, I didn't want to know what was in those Hulk of Vitamins, Brian. I yeah, just, had, I just ate them up. <laughs> Am I, am I suspicious that I'm talking to a Hulkamaniac right now? No, no, no. I was a macho man, Randy Savage man, if, if ever there was one, Brian. Oh, the <laughs> Ultimate Warrior is more my cup of tea. 
Now, how did you come out to California and hang out here? And we didn't get into the WWE when we were here. You were here. We, yeah. we probably could have gone to an event. But uh, I have to admit, I was of that generation that just missed WWE. I'm a little old. I'm a touch older than you, Owen. And so that really blew up in the late 80s, early 90s. And by then, Owen, I'd moved on to more adult matters. <laughs> so I used to watch I watched wrestling with sort of a slack-jawed distance of, wow, what's going on? Now, Now, granted, pro wrestling has a great history in this country, going back to the 50s and, and guys like that. And I used to watch it a little bit in the 70s before... Vince McMahon, the greatest marketing genius maybe in American sports history, uh, did his thing. But, yeah, as far as Hulk Hogan goes, another fall from grace, right? Now, I don't know how – and I'm talking about Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, all the guys we've had that saw Tiger Woods, all of our great American sports heroes. Now, I wouldn't put Hulk Hogan on a Lance Armstrong, Tiger Woods level for obvious reasons, but I would say that, like you – he had his acolytes, and he had his celebrity, and he had his fame, and he certainly was an enjoyable character. He always uh, he always entertained everywhere he went, but uh, I'm sure you guys have discussed it. Uh, a, a private tape leaked uh, in which he uses racial slurs, and that's just a no. In this environment these days, guys, that's a no-go. And WWE, who you would think would, would sort of appeal to the lowest common denominator, no no insult to present company, uh, would, would, would maybe not would, would not get too concerned with this, but they just stepped right in and, like Soviet Union style, erased him from their website, knowing that their marketing tentacles know enough that you can't do uh, things like this with the Confederate flag thing we talked about a couple weeks ago. So a tremendous fall from grace. Uh, and, of course, Hulk's fighting back, saying that the person who leaked the tape should go to jail, etc. But I was not a Hulkamaniac. I did not eat Hulk of vitamins. So I watched this one sort of from afar. He's not really a present. What is he now, 60, 61 years old, something like that? So he's not a, he's not a major figure in the current wrestling scene. But it was news for a few hours before we turned our attention to the next shiny object. It was definitely news, and, and people just ruefully shook their heads and said, there goes another one. Brian, I'll just have to let you go now. I'm just after popping up uh, WrestleMania 3 here on my laptop, and the Hulkster's <laughs> really struggling with Andre the Giant. I don't know if he's going to get past his size and win this uh, win this bout, so no offense taken, Brian. Thanks very much, and we'll let you get on with it. Thanks a million. The entertainment level is so good. I'm sure by next week, another scandal will be ours on Murph. Great talking to you guys. Take care. FIFA made a movie recently. Did uh, they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. God, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Zach Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you. We're one or two explosives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I did. And that was it. We were two explosives. And I just asked her to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or seconds, and I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement for FBI. And you've used to figure it out. Well done to you. Tom Brady has gone down the legal route since we chatted to Brian. It looks as though anyway he has, or there has been a fighting um, by the NFL Players Association asking that the U.S. District Judge vacates the suspension or at least puts it on hold until the case can be heard. 
if he takes that through to its uh, to its full conclusion, I don't know. I, I'd be interested. Would you like to see this blown up? I think Tom Brady has done enough to deserve his day in court. I <laughs> um, Brady versus U.S. That's what I want. I want to. I want to see. Can you imagine that was to come to pass? So funny. It would be one of the funniest things I've I would I would have ever seen. So here's hoping on. Here's hoping. I mean, the man has to stand up for his rights. You know, there you can only a man can bend and bend and break, but uh, bend and bend and bend. But someday on, he'll have to break. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that I want to see that happen in court to Tom Brady. All right, I don't know. Uh, I'm really to be honest. I don't know if I can finish out this show. We've there's been almost too much underbelly here. We've taken the underbelly of sport. We flipped it right over there. Mm. We're staring at it. We're rooting around in it. It's not the, pretty. The, the underbelly now has a tan, such as the, <laughs> the prolonged uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, viewing yes, that we've now it, given it. Yeah. So, so why let's, not, hey? we'll end with something more uplifting. How about some iconic commentary from the greatest racing commentator of all time, Peter O'Sullivan? I lived for 97 years before he passed away yesterday. 50 of those years spent as the voice of racing. Murphy, you discovered a couple of uh, things about O'Sullivan as you read the obituaries? Well, he was born in Kinmira, County Kerry. Now, I don't know if this is this a widely known fact, but it wasn't known to me, and it wasn't known to you, and it wasn't known to Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we reckon we're a pretty good bellwether of uh, random sporting facts. Uh, and also, he used the, the same binoculars for all of those 50 Grand Nationals that he used, and he got them off a German submarine the end of World War 2 so uh, yeah that's, wow. that's Peter O'Sullivan for you I love it okay. Sir Peter I Let's suppose we should call him play out the show with possibly his most famous piece of work this is the 1977 Grand National Red Rum winning the race for the third time it was voted the greatest moment in horse racing of the 20th century take it away Peter O'Sullivan Red Rum is still holding the lead now as they jump the second last he's over the second last in the lead Churchtown Boy didn't jump it too well and it's Red Rum and Tommy Stack now from Churchtown Boy the pill garlic and eye catcher as they come to the last fence in the National and Red Rum with a tremendous chance of winning his third National he jumps it clear of Churchtown Boy he's getting the most tremendous cheer from the crowd they're winning him home now the 12 year old Red Rum being preceded only by loose horses being chased by Churchtown Boy I catch him as moved into third with a pill garlic force they're coming to the elbow there's a furlong now between Red Rum and his third Grand National Triumph and he's coming up to the line to win it like a fresh horse in great style it's hats off and a tremendous reception you've never heard one like it at Liverpool Red Rum wins the National Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.